Amen. If you uh, have your Bibles and uh, if you'd like to turn in your text, your own text, to the passage we're going to be looking at today, please turn to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. Uh, today we're going to be continuing on in our, in our study in the parables of Jesus, which is our, our study over the summer. And uh, today we're going to be looking at uh, a parable that is typically referred to, and you'll see this in your, your own Bibles if you have them open, the heading, the parable of the tenants. Some call this the parable of the wicked tenants. Now, as you, you turn in the, the text, uh, we're in Mark, and it's the first time we've been in Mark's gospel. And, and the reason for that is because Mark doesn't actually have a lot of parables. It has a few, but not a lot, not nearly uh, the number of the other synoptics, Matthew and Mark and Luke, or the synoptic gospels. Uh, this particular parable is found in all three of those, those gospels, and they're very similar in each. Uh, but I thought that since we have not spent much time in Mark through this series, we would look at this parable uh, in this gospel today. And so follow along with me as we read God's word, beginning in verse 1 of Mark 12, and I'll read down through verse 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. And finally, he sent to them, him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. And this is God's word. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching and the hearing of his word this morning. So this week, uh, I came across this article uh, that was written earlier in the year. And, and the article is about a growing problem, you're probably aware of this, we're a growing problem in our nation, um, and it's about people uh, squatting in people's homes. The article is entitled, Squatters Torment Homeowners Across U.S. with No Resolution in Sight. And, and what the story is basically about are people going into homes that are vacant, and it could be the reason the house is vacant is because the, the owner of the home has away from the home, traveled somewhere, and has gone for a long period of time and has left the home 
open and no one's watching the home for them. The instances where it most happens, though, is when parents die and they leave the home as an inheritance for their children, but their children don't take immediate possession of the home. And so the home is left open and vacant, and what ends up happening at times, and this is, this is growing, this is happening more and more, I hope it's not happened to any, anyone that's here, but people will see that and literally move into the home that doesn't belong to them, they have no legal right to be in, it's not legally theirs, they will move in and take up residence in that home. Now, as I read the story, that part of it, really didn't like stun me in any kind of way because people do stuff like that, right? I mean, we kind of all know that. The part of the story, though, that really stunned me was how difficult it is to get them out once they're in, to legally get them out of your house. The house doesn't belong to them. They have no legal right to be in the house but it takes month after month after month of legal proceedings and all kinds of money just to get people in your house out of your house. It's an extraordinary thing, isn't it? Now, I thought of that in relationship to this parable, not because the parable's about squatters. It's not called the parable of the squatters. It's called the parable of the tenants. And the reason is I thought of this is because even though these are tenants, which basically means they, they have lease or tenant farmers, so they have lease with the owner, the vineyard owner. They have leased this land, and so they have legal right to be on the land and legal right to work the land. But the parable basically indicates that when it comes down to the vineyard owner now going to get part of what is his, legally his, they respond by saying, no, we're going to treat this vineyard as if it belongs to us. Not you, not the rightful owner, but to us. Now, one of the things that we will see as we make our way through the parable, and we'll talk about this in more detail in a moment, is that when Jesus tells this parable, what he's basically doing is he's, he's retracing the history of Israel. And he's retracing the history of Israel in relationship to their response to God and God sending to them over and over and over again, his servants, the prophets, and what they did to him. Now, the reason Jesus is telling this parable, though, is because what the religious leaders of the day are doing to him is the same thing that Israel had done to the prophets in their past. Over and over again said no and rejected okay now as we get into the parable one of the things we're going to see is we're going to see the tenants who basically represent the religious leaders we're going to see their response and hopefully learn from that but one of the things I think we also see and this is the more important lesson I think of the parable is that the parable is is, is primarily and ultimately about about God that's what it's about it's about God. In fact, one scholar actually, instead of referencing and calling this parable the parable of the tenants or the parable of the wicked tenants, he calls this parable the parable of the noble vineyard owner and his son. Because that really does point out what we're going to see here. We see something about God and about his character. 
And so when we look at his character, then we begin to see, okay, how are we to respond? Now, there are three lessons from this parable that I want to draw to your attention, things about God. And these three lessons are these. The first is we see God's shocking patience. The second thing is we see God's surprising plan. And the third thing we see is God's severe punishment, okay? So his shocking patience, his surprising plan, and then ultimately his severe punishment. And each of these are given. These are things about what God is really like. And as we hear them, hopefully our response will be very different than that of the tenants, okay? So the first thing is God's shocking patience. God's shocking patience. God is patient. It's one of the things that we see clearly in this, in this parable, okay? Now, the parable begins. It's set up in verse 1 again, and it says this, and he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, and he put a fence around it, and he dug a pit for the wine press, and he built a tower, and he leased it to tenants, and he went into another country. Now, something that's interesting about this parable, and you may not have thought at all about it, especially if you haven't been here through the whole series, is that this is one of those parables where Jesus actually doesn't have to tell them what it means. They know. They all know. Everybody gathered there knows. There's no part of this where he later goes into a house, like we've seen in some parables, and he has to tell the disciples, well, this is what this means, and this means this, and this means this. There's none of that. They know this. And the reason they know this is because when Jesus uses this metaphor of, of the vineyard, He's using language that was a part of Old Testament history. Therefore, it would have been a part of the, the thinking, the imagination, the religious psychology of Israel so that they would have known, okay, when he talks about a vineyard, we know who he's talking about. In fact, back in, in Isaiah chapter 5, there's this passage that references this. And many scholars, in fact, I don't think I came across one that didn't say this, they, they talk about how Jesus in the parable of the tenants is reframing this, this poem from Isaiah chapter 5. And listen to it. You can read, read the whole of it later. It's seven verses, but I won't read all those now. But in Isaiah 5 verse 1 and 2, listen to what Isaiah says. He says, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with, a, with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and he hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Think about how Jesus is saying so many things very similar to that, right? I mean, that whole way of planning it and what he does, all of that, right? But then in verse seven of Isaiah, it says this, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. So then when Jesus says a man plants a vineyard and does all of this, everybody that's gathered around him, all the, all the people, the disciples, the Jews, everybody that was there, they would immediately know he's talking about us. He's talking about Israel. And the religious leaders of the day, and in the context you'll see, and I will come back to this more in a moment, you'll see that he's in this interchange with the religious leaders. The religious leaders, they clearly knew that this parable was specifically, it's about Israel, but specifically about them. Look at verse 12. It says, and they were seeking, the they there is the religious leaders, they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. 
So they left and went away. They got it. Jesus tells this parable. They're standing around going, but they're so afraid of everybody. They can't do what they want to do. Right? They can't do it right then, what they want to do. They know he's talking to them. Right? And what he's basically doing, I said this already, but what he's basically doing is he's saying, okay, I'm going to take you back. And through this, this parable, I'm going to sort of talk you through what Israel has done over and over and over again. And now you are doing this to me. And you see that in verse 2 down through verse 5, where it says, when the, when the season came, he sent, this is the owner of the vineyard, right? He, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and they beat him and they, they sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and they treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed, right? I mean, he's telling a story that speaks to their story, isn't he? It's a story of God sending prophet after prophet, and, and over and over they rejected, and, and some they abused, and some they mistreated, and some they imprisoned, and some they put in, sent into exile, and some they killed, like think of the prophets that were killed under Jezebel or Zechariah who was stoned or Isaiah, as Jewish tradition says, who was, sown in, who was sown in half or even in the immediate context of this particular parable where, where he's, he's talking even in the context of John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, the immediate predecessor of Jesus, and they did what? They beheaded him. Stephen, before he was martyred, because he proclaimed Jesus, said this in Acts chapter 7, verse 51 and 52. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. You can't get any clearer than that. Which of them did you not mistreat? Did you not persecute? Did you not reject? Did you not kill? Now, as we listen to the parable, okay, we can then ask ourselves, as people heard this parable, what in the parable would have shocked them? Would the absentee vineyard owner have shocked them? In other words, a man plants a vineyard, puts people in charge of it, and he takes off. No. Because people did that then. People do that today. Right? Okay. Would the tenants acting the way they acted... Would that have shocked anyone in that audience? No. Because I said at the beginning of the sermon, when you think about the story of people going and squatting in people's homes, well, that doesn't surprise me. What surprises me, what shocks me, is you can't do anything about it. 
right? Do you know what, have, what would have utterly shocked everybody in that audience? That the vineyard owner kept sending servants. Even though he knew over and over and over, he sent servants. He sent his prophets pleading with Israel, come back, return to me, turn away from the world, turn away from its ways. Trust in me over and over again. This is the extraordinary and shocking patience of the God of Israel, of our God. He is patient and long-suffering with his people. But why? You know, Peter, I think, nails this, where he says, this is in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, God is patient towards you, not wanting that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This was God's patience with Israel, his long-suffering with Israel, that they would come to the place finally to repent and turn back, Right? This is what he wanted. I mean, when we ask ourselves in relationship to the world that we live in, why is it that God doesn't finally come and, come and judge this world? Because, I mean, God is, is patient because he wants people to repent. But one of the things that I think you and I have to understand is that this speaks to us as well. I mean, so often what happens when we look at these things and we say, okay, what does it say to the world? Let's ask this question. What does it say to us? He's talking to his people. When we walk down paths of rebellion, when we walk down paths of dishonoring God, when we don't seek to honor God, and over and over and over again, God says, come back. And that patience he shows us so we will repent and turn to him. May we never take his patience for granted. It is the opportunity to say, Lord, I am walking the wrong path. I am not living for you. I come back. Now, this leads into the second thing that we see here about God and about his character. On the one hand, if we see God's shocking patience, the second thing that we see is God's surprising plan. That there is a plan in all of this that God has. Even though it doesn't look like it, it looks like loss, it looks like defeat, but it's not that. Notice in verse 6 through verse 8, he had, had still one other. So all of the sending of all of these servants, the vineyard owner had one other. A beloved son. And finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. 
But those tenants said to one another, this, this, this is the heir. Come, let us, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. So if you, if you hear this and you're, you're thinking, okay, as probably people in the audience were thinking, but if you hear this and you're thinking, okay, why in the world would the vineyard owner, after seeing the track record, after seeing the violence, after seeing the evil response, all the servants, all these servants, that keep, he keeps sending them, why would he send his only and beloved son? Why would he do that? And if you're asking that question, you are asking the right question. Because it is that question and the answer to it that ultimately leads you into the reality of the gospel. Right? Why would he do this? And in the, in the parable, it actually is kind of clear. I mean, it gives us some indications as to, to what the, 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 the father, the vineyard owner is doing and what the father, God, the father of, the, of, our, of our Savior, his son, Jesus Christ, is doing. And there's, there's two things. The first thing is the, the landowner, the vineyard owner, he states it. He says something that is really important and it's easily missed, but he says something about why he sent his son. It's at the end of verse 6. Know what he says. They will respect my son. They will respect my son. Now, what does that mean? It means he's the son. It means he has authority. It means he has a very different authority than the servants who were sent. Right? The servants, I mean, they went representing, they went speaking for, but the son, the, the, the vineyard, here's a way of thinking about it, the vineyard, it's as much his as it is the father's. And the tenants knew it. Because when they see him coming, remember what they do? They go, hey, there's a son. The dad must be dead. Kill him. It's ours. Okay? They will respect my son. Now, what this speaks to is something very important about Jesus and who he is. He is the one who has authority. This is true. He has authority because he is, and we're going to confess this before we come to the table today, in the Nicene Creed, he is the second person of the Trinity. He is the son of God. He is the son of man. He has rightful authority over all of creation. This is who Jesus is. And it is to that authority that the tenants, that the religious leaders, and that anyone in this world has to come to terms with. Jesus has ultimate authority. And the context of the parable gives clear indication that that is exactly the issue that they're facing. If you know back in chapter 11, one of the things we see here, this parable is given in the, the last week of Jesus' life. And so some things have taken place. He has come into Jerusalem triumphantly. That's already taken place. He's cursed the fig tree. That's already taken place. He's cleansed the temple. That's already taken place. And then there is this scene, verse 27 and 28 of Mark chapter 11. 
It says, and they came to Jerusalem. And so remember, they went out to Bethany and then they come back into Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples. That's what this is describing. And they came to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, this is after doing all that he had done and cleansing the temple, as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they came to him and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And we look at that and we go, well, they're just asking questions. I mean, isn't it right to ask questions about his authority? That's not what they're doing. That is not what they're doing. And Jesus knows that's not what they're doing. He knows how they will respond. In fact, let me put it this way. And all of us have probably experienced this. Sometimes a question is a direct challenge of your authority. Is that not true? Your children probably do it all the time. The question comes, it's like, oh, no, it's not. They just question that authority. And that question is like, you stupid, you're an idiot, and I'm not going to listen to you. This is where they are. This is what they're about. And Jesus knows it, so he responds in this way. Hey, listen, okay, I'll answer the question. This is what Jesus does. I'll answer the question, but I want you to answer a question first. Was John the Baptist's baptism, was it from heaven or from man? And they circle the wagons, they come together, and they start kind of deliberating with one another. And like, okay, okay, if we say from heaven, then Jesus is going to say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from man, then all these people around me are going to be mad, around us are going to be mad. Why? Because they all believe he was a prophet, which he was. And so they turn to Jesus and they say, I'm not going to answer. And Jesus responds by saying, neither am I. And then he tells this parable, right? Because they have rejected his authority. The authority of the Son of God, who reigns and rules over the vineyard. Have you? Do you? Are you? Now, the parable not only gets at that part, the the person of Jesus, his authority, it actually gets at his work. And it does so in an interesting way. Because what, what Jesus does here is he now quotes from the Old Testament. And he goes back to Psalm 118. And this is part of the reason in our readings today, we had reflections on Psalm 118 in both our call to worship and our scripture reading early in the service. And he goes back and he quotes from that, okay? Now, this isn't the only time in Mark chapter 11 and 12 where Psalm 118 is quoted. When Jesus enters triumphantly into Jerusalem and the people of God gathered around him say in chapter 11, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They are quoting Psalm 118, verse 26. It's this wonderful psalm about entering into the worship of God in the temple. Now Jesus responds And he says something critically important about what he has accomplished. This is the the surprising, surprising plan of the Father with the Son. He quotes Psalm 118, verse 22 and 23, first in verse 10 and then in verse 11. Verse 10, he says, have you not read this scripture? That the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is picked up over and over in the New Testament in reference to whom? The stone, the rock. We sing that song, the rock, the stone, Jesus. The stone that the builders, the religious leaders, 
the builders of Israel, that they rejected, it has become what? The cornerstone. The cornerstone of what? Of what? A whole new structure, a whole new temple, a whole new people, and a whole new creation. And yet they have rejected this. And here's the thing that's so interesting about it, because what they're about to do, it's almost, it's almost being prophesied in the parable. What they're about to do is exactly what the tenant owners had done. What happened? He sent his son, they kill him, they throw him out of the vineyard. Jesus was what? Rejected by the tenants, rejected by the religious leaders, and in their collusion with the Romans, he was put to death on a cross. Hebrews 13, 12 tells us outside of the gate. But this wasn't a happenstance of history. This wasn't a thing out of God's control because nothing is. Jesus goes on and he quotes that very next verse from Psalm 118. And he says in verse 11, this was the Lord's doing. Oh my goodness, this is so extraordinary. This was the Lord's doing. God is sovereign over even this. God is in control of even this. They rejected their Messiah. They put him to death on a cross. This is the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Is it marvelous to you? I hope so. This is the most tragic, awful, wondrous, glorious story in the history of mankind. It is as C.S. Lewis talks about the deeper magic. You know that language of the deeper magic in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Where he talks about Aslan, the lion, the Messiah figure, being put to death on the stone table and innocent for others. And what happens is that deeper magic, that, that deeper thing that is outside of our human understanding, that deeper magic takes hold so that this one who was put to death for others, he comes alive and he brings about a whole new thing. This is what Jesus has done for our salvation. This is why we rejoice in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So back up and then I'm going to make a last point. The parable shows us God's patience. The parable shows us God's saving purposes. But the parable also does more. Because there is a warning here. And this is the third and final thing of God's severe punishment. For those who don't come and surrender to the Son. Note verse 9. Verse 9, Jesus asks a question, and he doesn't even wait for the answer. He gives it. What will the owner of the vineyard do? They killed his son. That's what this, they killed his son. What will he do? He will come and destroy the tenants 
and give the vineyard to others. Now, let me, let me break that down a little bit for you. First thing it says is he will come. And there's something, something very powerful in that language and something that probably goes a little bit further than a lot of us think. As we think about this, and we think about the coming of God and, and the way God comes, and a lot of times when we think of his coming, we think of his first and his second coming. And those things are critically important. They define redemptive history, the beginning and the end of his coming, and then his ultimate wrapping all things up. But a mistake that I think we can make as Christians, because we're so sort of bent towards and we understand the significance of his second coming and that final sort of restoration and judgment and all those kinds of things, that we don't actually understand that God comes, that God isn't just coming, but that he actually does come. And he comes at times in blessing, extraordinary blessing upon his people. And he comes at times in judgment, that he does that. And he does that throughout history, that God has done that. And it pushes us away from this kind of mindset, which I think a lot of evangelicals end up having, that God is distant and removed. That God isn't really concerned about the things of this world. That God isn't really engaged in the things of this world. That God's not really interested in the things of this world. Let me put it another way. Here's one of the ways we think. Jesus came the first time and he came and he provided salvation for us. So we need to tell everybody about Jesus and so they can get saved. Because at one point in the future, God is going to come back again then and judge all things. That is not true. It is true, but it's not fully true. Because what does this actually say? It says that the landowner, the vineyard owner, he, is, he will come and destroy the tenants. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you need to understand something. That happened. It happened in 70 A.D., When Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. And one of the things that you clearly see in scripture over and over again is how God uses nations to do what? Bring about justice. Bring about judgment. And he's done it with them. He came. And he destroyed. And then what does it say? And he gave the vineyard to others. What is that about? It's about the expansion of the gospel into the Gentile world. It's about the grafting in of Gentiles into the people of God, right? That's what it's about. It's about what you see in the book of Acts, the rejection of the Jewish people of their own Messiah, right? And then the gospel going out and people believing in Jesus and coming into, being engrafted into the family. That's what's being described here, okay? Now, please don't misunderstand. I cannot tell you how many times and you may be feeling this, I don't know, but you can tell me. But how many times in preparing for this, I was reading comments saying things like this. Got to be careful that this isn't anti-Semitic. Got to be careful this isn't anti-Semitic. And, and what I'm saying is not. I promise you, it is not. This is the Jewish Messiah. And we need to remember that. Being rejected by his people, that's what was happening. Not everybody did. Some believed in him. And those who believed in him, trusted in him, and are part of this community. But here's the thing about what is being said here. The warning that is now being presented to Israel where they face the judgment 
because they rejected their own Messiah, his authority. That warning is still before us. I'm going to read a passage that wraps this up. In, in so, so many ways, I think what Paul's doing in this passage is he is theologically wrestling with the reality of what Jesus is telling in this parable. And here it is. Romans chapter 11. This glorious section of Romans 9 through 11. And in Romans 11, he says this beginning in verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. You hear what he's saying? He's saying to Gentiles, don't be arrogant. The, the fact that, that Christians could in, in any possible way be anti-Semitic is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. How in the world can we possibly be anti-Semitic when our Savior's Jewish? Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. That's why, brothers and sisters in Christ, if you're not in your Old Testament, you're not getting this story. If you're not reading the whole Bible, you're not understanding the Bible. Then you will say, Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. But here's the question we all have to ask. Why were those branches broken off? Why the parable? And here's what he says. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God, listen to this, listen closely and remember something. Paul is writing to the church. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. Now listen, I know that there are some who are gathered here today, and you have a very sensitive spiritual conscience, and you hear me say this, and talking about these warnings, and I'm telling you something, the warnings of the Bible are true, but here's a mistake that we can oftentimes make. We take grace and we treat it as something that is detached from the covenantal realities of the Bible. We take grace and we basically treat grace as if it is this thing that is, I'm going to give you some references to think about it. This is getting your ticket punched to go to heaven when you die, but to hell with how you live right now. Or this is your get out of jail free card in Monopoly. So that whatever you do now, you got to get out of jail free card. And it's totally removed grace from covenant. It's removed grace from from the realities of the covenant relationship that we have with God where we are called to a life of faithful response to all of his grace. 
And we are missing it. And therefore, when you go through the New Testament and over and over again, you see warnings to the church, warnings to us. When you see the letters to the churches in Revelation, which are these seven letters, these seven churches, I mean, these seven churches representing the universal church, and, and Jesus actually says, your lampstand will be removed if you don't repent. Now, if you're sitting here and you're going, okay, I really do believe I love Jesus. I struggle and I'm falling into sin and I keep coming back and I keep turning to him and asking him to forgive me and I seek to live for him. Then Pastor Mike, are you saying that God is going to reject me? No, I am not. You want to know why? Because you are living in the kindness of God. You are understanding God's kindness and grace towards you and what are you doing? You're constantly running back to him. That's what all of us can do. None of us in this life are going to get it all right. None of us in this life are going to get perfect. But when we sin, we run back to him. Who am I speaking to? I'm speaking to anyone who may be here or anyone under the sound of my voice and you have this exterior veneer of Christianity, this cultural Christianity, but when it all does come down to it, there is no submission to Jesus, no understanding of what he's done, no reality in which your life is going to be following him fully. And you're sitting there going, hey, I'm a member of a church or hey, I can speak Jesus' name or hey, one time I walked down the aisles of a church. Be warned. Because you may not, in fact, be following him at all. And he may not, in fact, know you. And what he is saying is repent while there is still time. And I promise you, if you do, he's faithful. Don't give your life to something or someone else. Give your life and your all to Jesus. And if you do, whatever your failings, whatever your difficulties, whatever your hardships, I promise you, he has you and he's not going to let you go. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and we praise you for your word and your commitment to us and even these hard and difficult warnings of Scripture. We pray that as we respond to this, Lord, we'll turn back. We'll come to you in repentance. We'll seek to honor you and live for you. We'll seek to put you first in our lives. And that we won't buy into a concept that Bonhoeffer described as cheap grace. But that we'll understand that grace is God coming to undeserved people and empowering and enabling us to be different people. So may we trust in Jesus, and even as we come to the table today, may we be reminded of all that he has done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's join together as we...